0: Hi there and welcome back to The Fuse Show. Today I'm joined by Stephen Holper. He's the president of the North America D- division of uh, DocAir, the first global network of physician-only platforms for programmatic messaging. Uh, before joining DocAir, he was a VP of innovation and products at Comcast, NBC Univ- uh, Universal. He was also a founding member of uh, Merck's ScottWorks Digital Solution Division, uh, VRE Health, a digital services startup and subsidiary of Merck. Uh, thanks for joining us in the show.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So for the sake of our audience, can you tell us a little bit more about how DocCare, uh, what, what you all do and uh, how did you all get started?
1: Sure. So DocCare is a programmatic marketing company that reaches physicians um, through professional media, th- uh, professional social media, as well as um, electronic medical records and telemedicine platforms. So what we do is we broker messages between life sciences companies. You think of your pharmaceutical companies, your medical device companies, your digital therapeutic companies, anyone who wants to get a message to physicians in in an environment where they're working. So it's natural for them and contextual. um, We will essentially make that connection. And uh, what we find is that um, because it's within the workflow of physicians, they're more accepting to those messages because it's actually when they Hmm. need. Uh, to learn about different topics. So um, I've I've worked in life sciences for or digital health for about 20 years, and it's been kind of a natural uh, expression of my uh, background to, to join DocCare. I've been here for about three or four months.
0: Would you happen to know the origin story of the company and how uh, it came I to do.
1: be? Yeah, our founder and global CEO, his name is Jane. Jain. Uh, he's a physician. He trained in the United States. Um, and his aspiration was he practiced medicine for a while. he worked in a um, in, in the agency side of the pharmaceutical world so he had been running innovation and he, he ran different um, country units uh, in Europe and in uh, Southeast Asia and in the United States. so he had this idea to figure out like how how can you best get messages in the hands of physicians when they actually need it and from a pharmaceutical or life sciences company or medical device, um, company, how do you, how do you get the right physicians to receive that message and how do you know that they're receiving it? So kind of his, Mm -hmm. his vision in, um, starting the company was to solve this age old, uh, challenge of how to reach physicians and how to make it meaningful and how to interact with them on their own terms. And that's been difficult because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of regulations about how you can communicate um, drugs globally. You know, For example, in the United States, you can communicate to um, consumers like myself and you directly through television advertising, but in the rest of the world, that's really not um, an option. Um, so hmm. one of the things to do is to kind of keep this on the professional physician side to make sure that there's kind of some sanctity in the way that um, pharmaceutical advertising or other medical device advertising is done through the physician specifically, instead of to the patient.
0: Can you tell me about the ideal user of your platform? Like, who is it that this platform is
1: geared towards? Sure. So there's there's two types of users. There's um, large brands that um, come from companies that you probably know of um, that want to do in-house programmatic marketing. So they want to take a little control back on on how they're. Um, spending their media and how they're monitoring it and how they're um, being able to report on it. Uh, We also have agency partners who have direct relationships with those brands as well. And they are kind of the strategic partner for many of these brands. They help them with creative, they help them with campaign design. And oftentimes those become really important partners for us um, as they are kind of doing broader creative campaigns and making sure that the a uh, pharmaceutical or life science brand or medical device brand can meet like an over overall campaign promise to their uh, clients.
0: Can you tell me how this platform identifies like users as either like physicians or non physicians? Because I imagine that's like a key component of how the whole thing works. It,
1: it is one of the one of the challenges is that um, if if you're talking about a physician that's in a professional media site, so that's somewhere where they get education. It might be a journal or something like that. Um, everything that we do is authenticated. So it's people that sign in and are authenticated. So if it's an electronic medical record, they have a user name and an ID and they consent and they can opt out if they wish. That's one of the ways that we're, um, dealing with the really big changes that, you know, it's called, if you're a marketer, it's called a, you know, cookie deprecation where, uh, some of the browsers, et cetera, are not allowing for cookie tracking. Mm-hmm. So the good thing is about this business is kind of forward thinking in that, you know, we are using people that are identified, they are consented, um, they're behind a, a firewall, so to speak. And that allows us to be able to identify who they are uh, appropriately and send the right message to them at the right time.
0: Hmm. As more and more companies move towards digital forms of documentation,
1: how do you see that affect
0: com- uh, companies like your own?
1: I think the the trend towards more digital everything, if you look at um, the electronic medical record space, hospitals and health systems, they are all going through digital transformation right now. Um, As a matter of fact, some of the pharmaceutical companies internally. So that trend continues. The more digitization happens, I think we ride along with that wave because all of our interactions with physicians uh, and their offices are digital. Um, So the way that we're interacting with them naturally, um, you know, we can basically ride the wave of uh, that trend. And, you know, what you'll see more and more is as, as hospitals begin to continue to go through their digital transformation and they and we feel that experience change as a consumer, you know, it'll become very obvious that, um, you know, there's this new healthcare ecosystem evolving that's actually been you know, from my experience, it's been accelerating greatly since COVID-19. I hate to bring up COVID-19 because we're all living in it, but uh, that the pandemic has really shifted a focus on the pharmaceutical industry, on the medical device industry, on digital therapeutics um, to interact with their consumers in a digital way. Um, And it's the same thing that's happening with the hospitals, more digitization, which means, you know, more patient records that are digital, which means more intake and, and appointments that are available uh, so th- that's been a really, um, a really accelerated trend in the last twelve or uh, sixteen months.
0: So, when you think about this entire ecosystem of digital uh, transformations for health-based companies and um, medical-based companies, what do you? What is the scope? Like, what what are you? What are all the related elements in this ecosystem that you think are going to be most impacted?
1: So, I often wonder whether life sciences companies that have sales representatives that physically go into offices, how impacted they are by, um, Mm -hmm. the continuation of a pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. the reason why I say that is because I know in some categories, like for example, oncology, um, I know the physicians and other people that work in the office who are treating patients every day, they're not necessarily comfortable with seeing a lot of people Uh, And I know some hospitals have kind of shifted their policies to who can come, when can they come, what conditions can they come, uh, do they need to be vaccinated. Um, I think that is a a really interesting area. And, and the reason why it's interesting is because those life science companies for, you know, probably five, six, seven, eight years, they've, they've been looking at tele-reps, which is kind of a, uh, a more virtual type rep experience. And I think, again, this, this pandemic has kind of necessitated that to be, become a reality. So I think the interaction with those companies becomes a little different. Um, and, and I would say also on the patient care side that I cannot personally see a future without telemedicine. You have telemedicine for behavioral health, you have telemedicine for routine checkups and primary care, you have telemedicine for specialist visits. Um, now that that does not replace in-person procedures that you need to go to it does not replace radiology that you need to get it does not replace laboratory results or uh, labs that you need to obtain to monitor your condition but for the most part i think this uh, you know the the trend towards virtualization will probably stick around and hopefully it's for the better i mean i i don't know about you but i've had some pretty good experience given the circumstances with healthcare in the last 12 years, I'm sorry, 12 months. uh, And I'm just hoping the convenience of that sticks around.
0: I noticed this trend trend in my own experiences where the more modern the tech stack and tools that a hospital or medical office uses, generally the easier of an experience I have. So I understand it's like one of those things where like the engineering department and the physician like quality obviously are probably not all that like there's a correl- like a very weak correlation if at all yeah. but as a consumer I just notice I have a smoother experience when the like
1: the website is beautiful the app actually works I, as opposed to like having all these random bugs I totally agree with you I think that what what's happening in the hospitals is they there's this role since electronic medical records have been kind of pervasive they have a chief medical information officer um, who is essentially responsible for Figuring out how to leverage information or data to make the place work better, to get better outcomes, to treat people better, to even optimize how billing happens. Um, and as a result of that, you see a lot more people kind of shifting to a consumer-focused approach, thinking about what is the user experience from, you know, showing up at the hospital to leaving, and even you know if you have to have a follow-up appointment. So, you know, I think you see kind of the Not in every case, but you see in a lot of hospitals, they take like a lean startup mentality where they're trying to do, uh, they're trying to apply design thinking to, uh, the overall customer experience. And they're really thinking of a consumerized experience. And, you know, that's evident when you talk, when you look at, you know, how, how you can log in for an appointment, how you get maybe an SMS message before, you know, two days before you show up, um, whether you can, you know, pay for the appointment in different ways, um all of those things are starting to come in and and change the experience. Uh, There's a long way to go, but uh, there's definitely some positive steps that I've seen in the last uh, three or four years.
0: If you were one of these information officers, what would you do if you were in charge of a hospital and we are trying to stay ahead of the curve?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what I would do and this is this is kind of lending from my experience of running innovations team I would probably build a little kind of customer experience or innovation team that's kind of very cross functional you know have some nurse uh, some nurses have some um, uh, people uh, you know physicians that are on the front lines uh, make sure you have people that are kind of uh, on the IT side on the billing side and and kind of do what an IDO or a frog design does and think through what is the full experience when you arrive and what happens when you leave. I would probably leverage as much data as is available uh, to kind of predict and proactively um, create experiences. So instead of having people fill out, (laughs) one of the things from my personal experiences in going to hospitals is when you meet a new physician, they literally ask you the same thing: <laughs> "Oh, what's your <laughs> birthday?" And they ask you why you're here. And it's it's like if you're there for a couple of days, it's it's actually pretty <laughs> uh, pretty frustrating. The other thing you'll notice in those settings is uh, there's all these beeps happening, and you're wondering why none of these beeps are getting responded to. <laughs> because people have you know they get fatigue from some of the alerts of some of the medical devices that are uh, that are in the. Um, the suites (laughs) but Hmm. at any rate i mean i would really put together a user-centered design firm to kind of test trial uh different things in different areas of the the business um and and quite frankly you know the more that because healthcare is a very local thing the more that you can engage the local community in that process bring in patients bring in caregivers um and get their feedback the better you'll be i mean that's the type of experience i'd want to have if i were Going to a hospital, it's more of uh, let's let's think of it not not as a hospital, more of a hotel. I understand you have hmm. to go there for some procedure, but you know the experience should be as good as possible because in some cases the circumstances for your visit are not great. So make it great when you can.
0: Earlier, you were mentioning how the pharmaceuticals industry and the sale and I guess the pharmaceutical reps have to have mm-hmm. an entirely different process during COVID and probably potentially even indefinitely if the world. Respond and based on how the world responds to COVID long-term. If you're a pharmaceutical company, how, how would you handle things to stay on top of like the digital trends towards um, the way things are going now?
1: So I will say that pharmaceutical companies are actually well on their way. Like digital, if you speak to them individually, you'll see a lot of them are focused on digital innovation. They're um, thinking digital first. Now, I, I think it's... Um, you know, they have an existing business model. So the tele-repping is what they call the kind of telemedicine type visit with a sales rep. Um, you know, that, that's been helpful, being able to um, request samples, so pharmaceutical samples or device samples, uh, easily through technology, being able to interact with a sales rep through a chat uh, feature, those types of things. I, kn- I know that the many of the companies have kind of dipped their toe in the water in a lot of the topics that I just mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. The question is, does that apply for each brand that they have? Does it, is it make sense for every Mm -hmm. specialty that they serve? Because some of them are in small practice, some of the customers are in small practices, and some of them are in big hospitals. And it's, it's, it's a very different experience. Um, The life science companies also have, you know, physicians and other, you know, um, people with advanced degrees, like PhDs that, that do kind of uh, medical, they serve as a medical liaison for the company, so they interact with a lot of the medical staff in in the uh, hospitals, health systems, and physicians' offices. Um, so I'd I'd be thinking about how to maximize the the resources that the life sciences companies can provide that's non promotional in nature to those doctors to make sure that doctors have the they're educated on the products, um, and you know possibly have opportunities for continuing medical education. Um, so there's a lot that can be done. What what I would say is that hmm. the industry is very interested in piloting things, but they're not always, um, you know, not everything scales because they do take a pretty deliberate approach on testing things and figuring out if they're mm-hmm. getting the right business results. Um, so I would say, you know, the first thing is to, you know, if you don't have one already, establish a digital innovation function, you know, give those, uh, those team members some permission to test things out and. And fail occasionally, but always measure and get results. Um, learn from your failures um, and just kind of be comfortable with that. Set some budget aside um, that's you know not necessarily associated with the brand, so they can experiment. Uh, but you know, actually, when I was at Merck, I, I ran a team like that, and and the the best thing that we did was set aside you know specific and deliberate funding to innovate. Uh, and we ended up commercializing a bunch of other um, products that were in the digital health space. But the reason why we were able to get success is because we had some time, we had some money, and we were able to kind of use that as a way to test new innovations uh, with the brands. And that seems to work.
0: I feel like experimentation is almost a necessity for innovation to happen.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. Um, Can you-
0: Can you walk me through some of the experiments you've done in your past that you felt like or led to like major wins?
1: I sure can. Um, Well, I'll go back to when I was in research because that that was where um, I kind of learned software engineering. I was in in a laboratory setting where it was all carbon paper and you'd run like thousands of samples through this lab. You'd have to figure out where they were. And, you know, when I was going back to school for software engineering, I kind of started putting, you know, uh, I put a business case together to say, hey, if we automated this whole process, you know, we could save X amount of dollars. So um, one of my my executive director at the time, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the archives and I want you to pull an entire stack of paper from this study. And I want you to give a presentation to these pathologists, which are the scientists that run this area. And I want you to make the proposal to build this software. And when you're done, I want you to go under the the table, <laughs> get that stack of paper, and slam it on to make your point. So I did. And <laughs> you know, he he arranged for the vice president of the area to be there, who was the person that actually had the money uh, to do this. And you know that in, that presentation actually impressive enough to say. OK, if I'm believing that that's the value proposition that you can get and this is the change that you can impact, you know, I'll give you the money. Now, that's not a direct experiment, but what that was is kind of the way to raise money in a big company. It was kind of use this mm-hmm. demonstrable, visible thing to encourage um, the scientists to fund the project. And it was highly successful. It's still in use today. It was the first of its kind. Um, I can tell you later when I moved over to the commercial side of the pharmaceutical business at Merck, um, I was in an innovation group, and it was a technology innovation group. Now we had started looking at digital health. Uh, this is before app stores existed, so we had we had been looking at different technologies. We looked mm-hmm. at uh, Nokia had the Symbian platform, and Apple was just emerging. They had, I think, the iPod Touch was out, but the iPhone wasn't. And um, BlackBerry was one of the things that we were looking at. So, so we were looking at how to get the company past pill and vaccines. So we were coming up with a bunch of apps that, you know, we built an app for chemotherapy, an app for Coppertone, the consumer brand, an app for uh, an app called Vree for Diabetes, which was basically, um, it was a certified diabetes educator who's someone, who's that's someone who actually helps people who are newly diagnosed learn about diabetes, how to manage it. We actually digitized that person, with a lot of content and some science around getting people motivated to change on their own. So, we kind of built this little practice of uh, mobile apps, but we did that by showing this first prototype for diabetes. We showed it to the chief information officer. We got an audience with the chief strategy officer. And essentially, the pitch was you know, we think pharmaceutical companies can do something much more than pills and vaccines, although important there is there is an opportunity for us to get into digital therapeutics and apps and mm. things of that nature. So it wasn't until we kind of built a prototype and showed it around is where we started getting traction. And and candidly, I think over a period of uh, years, we probably had 300,000 users, which was pretty good for the scheme of a health app. But I would say in terms of a commercial success, it wasn't that. But the, the point is it led... Not only Merck to get into that space, but other other pharmaceutical companies to kind of get into the digital health space and think differently about their business. Uh, and you can even see see this today when like we were early in that. But what's interesting, if you look at other pharmaceutical companies and brands, they've done uh, solution type services. And you know, I'd like to think it's partially because of the experiment that teams like us did in the, in the early days. But you know, it was it was. You know, being able to fail and learn and and repeat and, you know, get that product in front of the end users and, and iterate on it was super important to the way that we were able to get uh, some semblance of success.
0: For the prototype that you just mentioned, how long did it take to build?
1: So, so it's interesting when we did that, there was no app standards. So there's no like style guide at the time. Um, so... I think we had we were doing sprints back then, so we were doing Agile Scrum. We were doing we would see the software developed every two weeks. Uh, we we'd have design sessions in between that to enhance it. Uh, we would go and get feedback. We scheduled some focus groups. So I I would say the first actual prototype that was worthy of getting in front of people probably took us two months, um, hmm. and then we ended up launching it it took quite a bit longer because we um, quite frankly, in a big company, it's not always easy to get things through. And I, and I remember Apple at the time, it was very stringent about what they approved on the app store. So we were kind of learning that was new too. So we were kind of learning that. And I remember being super paranoid about messing up because if you messed up there, they like started the clock back and you had to go back to the review. So if you had an actual launch Hmm. date, (laughs) and there was something wrong in the app, Apple would say they'd flag it, you got to go fix it, and then you'd actually have to go physically fix it, resubmit it, and then the clock starts all over. So that was, like, super uh, strenuous. But I I will say that I remember the app we did for Coppertone, we did in five weeks end-to-end, and then launched it on Good Morning America. Um, And that was really successful. Um, and that was not because we were superstars, it's because what we learned from the apps that came before that, um, we switched to more, you know, we went away from like waterfall and um, requirements to more um, design-centered, um, like user-centered design. So, you know, we we built the app the way it looked, uh, we had the development team work uh, in sprints, Get it, they were week, uh, two-week sprints, we got it done in three and uh, just in time to get it launched on on a national platform, which was awesome. And that that app went on to uh, it was editor's choice, um, new and noteworthy. Uh, so that was really nice. Hmm. But yeah, that that was that was based on what we learned, though. That was that it's not because we were like graded it at the time, because we were it was still early days then.
0: If you go back to, to that era of your career, what are some of the principles that you've learned then that still remain true today?
1: So I I read some of your background as well. You're an avid reader or audiobook as I am. I consume a ton of them, um, probably upwards of fifteen or twenty a year as well. And you know some some of the principles that I've learned, um, you know I when I was at Merck I actually went through Six Sigma uh, black belt training. Um, so that was kind of an hmm. intense pro- process improvement. And uh, you know you have to save a certain amount of dollars and you know go in front of a Panel of black belts, and they certify you. So that that kind of informs some of the way that I think about efficiency. Uh, But then again, I started as I started getting in the product development, and I read, you know, Eric Reese's Lean Startup, and I read, um, you know, any book that I could find on design thinking. Um, So, you know, I kind of all of those methods, if you're a purist on them, have their flaws, in my opinion. So I kind of take things around okay, lean startup, what did I learn from that? I learned, well, get feedback, build a prototype and get feedback right away. I mean, that's what I learned from that. On the Six Sigma side, it's, you know, build things for efficiency the first time you do it to the extent that you can. Um, so that, that's what I take a, away from that or to optimize and, and you know, make efficiency uh, a priority. And that's especially important in startups because you start with running, running, running and running, running, running some more. And then at some point you have to stop and optimize. So um, you know, that's there's a balance of growth there too. On the product development and design thinking side, you know, that's really about you know empathizing with your users, making sure that you really understand them, and then kind of cutting through some of the clutter with the data. Like um, don't be fooled by you know, one of the principles that I try to avoid is sunk cost bias. And that's that's when you spend a lot of time on something. And then you keep going. It's you're keeping going because you don't want to like throw away all the work you did. And I have to tell you, that's that's not a good place to be in innovation. You have to be able to throw in the towel and say, "This is what I learned from that." Um, hmm. So that that's a couple sampling of of things. But I like to kind of use methods from different areas, um, just because you know, like I said, no 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 philosophies. Perfect, but if you can find one that works for you and your teams, um, you know that's a good day.
0: So, some, those are some of the more business principles that you've uh, obtained. What about some personal principles you've either built or maintained over your career?
1: So, one thing I'll tell you, and it, it's it's relevant to my role at DotCare as well, is that um, I have learned that making sure you treat your team that works for you well. Um, people don't often think about this, you know, you think, oh, well, I worked, I might say I worked for this person before and they're a rock star and, you know, hopefully I can get a job with them again and I'm going to follow that person around. That's one way to look at things. Well, I've learned recently because when I was, um, interviewing for this job, uh, it was actually one of the people that used to work for me in another role. And I had another job that I was interviewing for. And it was similarly, it was another person that used to work for me that asked me to apply for that role. Now, what I learned from that is it's really important to treat your people with respect and coach them and mentor them and make sure that they have exposure to like David, some of the things that you just asked me about the business principles, make sure Mm -hmm. that they are exposed to them, make sure that they learn them for themselves because they, you know, they remember that and, you know, you can find your next role, you know, and you may not think it's going to come from someone that used to work for you, but um and just today i had a call from a product manager that used to work for me um looking at it another role he was kind of grateful for an introduction i made him and i think those types of experiences with people that um that that you've that i've touched or um you know they've taught me something in return that, that's really fulfilling mm. um so just treating people right making sure that you teach people everything you know to the extent that they <laughs> care to learn um and you'll, you'll have a great team for your next startup or your next job. And um, maybe it works out that they find you a role. So that's one. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say from a leadership perspective, um, just trying to be as humble as possible and listening and learning and kind of taking advantage of reverse mentoring. And when I say that, it's, you know, someone who works for me may assume that they um, they can learn something from me, but I shouldn't, I should not discount the fact that I can definitely learn something from them. Um, and that's especially important when you're a knowledge worker, because, you know, as, as we all get older, I mean, here's the reality of things. You know, we all get older, technology changes at a seriously rapid pace. And if you're not doing what you do and reading, you know, 14 books a year, it's really easy to be left behind. And so, to the extent that you can use people in your network to continuously learn, that that's a huge thing. Um, and I, I and I would say I'm a I'm a huge advocate of continuous improvement learning. Like I cannot hmm. um, I cannot tell you how much graduate school and or certificates and or um, um, you know I just finished a data science program a couple months ago. That that's super important just to keep fresh and uh, keep hmm. your career going.
0: How many? How many of those courses have you done now? So you started with oh. biology, and then you also did what else have you done? You done software engineering. So
1: I started. So I started in biology and environmental science, and then I went to um, went to engine software engineering. I I went to Babson College for uh, my MBA, and you know along the lines, I've gone to you know Penn for a variety of you know. Uh, scaling ventures and organizational behavior and you know i finished that uh, data science program statistics and python at, at columbia a couple months ago so uh probably too much i, I think i <laughs> i probably wasted most of my not wasted i, I probably invested a lot of <laughs> my time in my 20s when i should have been having more fun uh, working and going to school but in retrospect it was worth it for sure
0: do you have a favorite course or set of courses that you've taken, or a favorite program, just for any reason at all?
1: I, I have to tell you, I really love the applied data science program that I just took. I mean, it was—I think it was ten weeks of you know getting acclimated to Python and how to use it, and then the the other the back half of that, which I think was uh, twelve weeks or so, was applying it. So, uh, using statistical methods, applying that through Python. Um, that was, it was actually really fun. And and mm. the people that I met through that experience were really uh, wonderful too. And um, you you get to learn, that's a good way to network too. When you're doing a course like that, where you're actually all working and you have to help each other, <laughs> that's where you, that's where you make friends pretty quickly.
0: <laughs> so over the course of all of these uh, different programs that you've learned, what's the thing that motivates you? Like that like, constantly like pushes you forward? Like what's what's your end goal if you can if you have one or like a north star that you live by?
1: So that is a great question. I would probably start with it. it's probably uh, centered on a fear of being left behind, which may be rational or not. But I, I think uh, I'm pretty intrinsically motivated. Um, learning's important, and it's not something that I like. I if I go back to high school, I was a, I was a fine student, but I wouldn't say that my I didn't really develop until I was in college. I didn't really kind of, it didn't click to say that I could be successful in anything. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, after getting some experience, and I think part of it is you get older, you learn how to learn efficiently. Mm -hmm. So I think when you're, you know, I think back to college, you go away and you're like, oh my goodness, I just consumed an entire semester of work in a week. Because that's basically what it's like compared to high school. And then, you know, you, you don't really know how to learn. You're just you know, reading as much as you can, trying to learn, talk to people. Um, So I think what keeps me going is it goes back to the kind of Six Sigma Black Belt training is that I like to make my time as efficient as possible. So if I have any drive time, it's going to be filled with an audio book or a podcast because because what else are you going to do? I mean, I I actually don't even (laughs) listen to to music unless I'm trying to focus at work, ironically, um, because, you know, that's where I can kind of get some uh, me time, personal development time. Um,
0: Do you have a favorite so audio book?
1: Um, I have a lot of favorite audiobooks. books. Um, unfortunately, I'm one of those people that um, only reads professional <laughs> things. So okay. I think um, I, there, there's a few big data books that I, I think my, my favorite one is there's a product development book uh, and I'm, I'm drawing a, a blank on the name, but um it is, it is the quintessential how to build a product team, how to, um, you know, what the ratio of engineers to product managers is, the QA. Uh, it's a really good read. But a, a lot of the other ones that I've read have been, that have been really intriguing have been around uh, big data or data science. And the other one, which I'm super passionate about, which I think you are as well, is like, I've read every book on every startup. So, um, you know, the book about um, Marissa Meyer at Yahoo, the book about uh, Elon Musk, the book, you know, any book of, around, uh, you know, Sam Walton. So a- any of those folks have kind of, they're not startups now, but these are, these are really um, interesting um, reads. But I have to say, the one specifically that I'll tell you that I really, really enjoyed is Shoe Dog uh, by Phil Knight about Nike. And it, it's fascinating how that company got started and what he had to do. Um, but yeah, anything anything that's about a startup story, I love it.
0: I had a guest last week, and Shoe Dog was also their favorite book. And then oh, she, yeah, I was it's, also it's great. I just bought the book last week, and I think I have like two more books to read, and then I'll start Shoe Dog. But I am excited for it.
1: Now another one I really like is um, and that's a it's unfortunate because Tony Shape passed away not too long ago. But Delivering Happiness right. by T- that is a f- <laughs> fascinating book, especially if you like it's kind of the merger between culture and startup culture and an actual startup. Um, I mean, it, it's a fascinating read. It's really well done.
0: Hmm.
1: But my, I think my my all-time favorite book is about Ther- uh, Ther- Theranos. <laughs> if you haven't read that, oh. uh, <laughs> that blood? book is fantastic. Bad Boy. If okay, you have I not know. read that, that is a fantastic book.
0: That is my most recent audiobook purchase. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I'm telling you right now that you'll be uh, you'll be listening to that as much as you can before you get it done. I've talked to people who have read the book, listened to the audio book, and they can't put it down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have this problem where I can start a book. And I was like, shoot, that book is so interesting. I don't want to do anything, including sleep. So I'll just like, stay up until like 2 in the morning. Oh, shoot, it's 2 in the morning. I really should sleep at this point. But the books are just so interesting sometimes.
1: I have this other problem where I, I get ADD and I literally find myself writing, reading five books at once. <laughs> um <laughs> that's never a good thing but uh does it ever keep you up at night um no i'm i i appreciate my sleep uh i'm more of uh okay. i'm more of ai would i'd get sleep at night and get up early and get started i i like the um the early hours there's a you know a block of two or so hours where i really get a lot of focus time done hmm. Uh, either, either that, or you know, catch up with correspondence, or read uh, various professional things. That, that's really a nice time in the morning to get started before the team comes on. You mind if online. I ask you when you set your alarm to? Uh, I get up around five forty each morning, which is okay. not too 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 early, too too late. Um, I have have about a forty-minute commute, which is actually, in my opinion, that is the optimal time because I can. I think so too. That that's how that that's what happens when you like audiobooks. It's like I need enough time to get through this because if I have a nine-hour book, that's going to take me weeks to finish. (laughs) So So there was a. But you can really get through a few podcasts.
0: There was a stage in my career where I wanted to be as close to the office as possible, so I found an apartment ten minutes from the office but I realized that like my audiobook time went significantly down because it takes, it takes a few minutes for me to like, remember, like where did I pick off the audio Bible? Oh, that's where I left off and then like apply that context again. And it's like, Oh shoot. Now I'm in the office again. Like, like, that was like literally five minutes of like new content. And uh, it's, it's not the same.
1: (laughs) It's not the same and it's tough. And one of the things through the pandemic, when I was working from home for, you know, months and months over a year is, I mean, I feel <laughs> my Audible account, like I had all these credits, I couldn't use them because I, I wasn't in the same. <laughs> my habit was so broken that I, you know, yeah. what I started doing is I got up early, I walked around the block, listened to my audiobook or got some exercise. That's how I uh, kind of changed my routine.
0: I don't usually listen to audiobooks when I uh, clean the house, but now during COVID, I picked it as a habit because I feel like you're right. I, I'm just like, shoot, like my Audible annual subscription is about to renew and I still have like three
1: more credits. <laughs> yeah and and they apparently they start yelling at you like hey you're gonna lose these credits. I'm, not losing. I'm not losing them I'm gonna binge purchase 10 bucks right now <laughs> yeah
0: what are some of the things that you've uh, learned in recent years that you wish you knew call it like five to ten years ago
1: I think I'll, I'll tell you uh, this will this might be a relatively embarrassing story, but I, I will say that uh, in one of the innovation functions I led, I was sometime in my 20s, and the chief information officer of this company told me, "Just get it done, plow through <laughs> whomever you have to to make this happen," and I kind of listened to that advice, which in hindsight I. You know, it's something I probably not would have done because it it came back to haunt me at some point later in my (laughs) career. Is that, um, you know, it it wasn't that I was you know uh, overly aggressive or anything like that. It's it was you know the passion of trying to get something done that was truly innovative and can make a big difference. And you know what I learned from that was some of the people that I needed to participate. Now they they worked with me at that time and they got done what was asked. And the only reason that happened like that in a big political organization is because I had, you know, the permission of a senior executive. But here's what happened after that. One, one of the persons I ended up working for (laughs) later in my career. And, you know, it kind of set a sour note on that because, you know, it's kind of a, one of these bull in the China shop things where, you know, I was tasked to get this done and I'm going to get it done no matter what. And that person didn't forget it. And, Hmm. You know, quite frankly, I just learned that, you know, anyone you interact with, it doesn't matter if they're a vendor, if they're a coworker, if they're in a, another department, you're going to see those people again, especially if you work in a niche industry. You know, if you think, you know, pharmaceutical or the healthcare industry or one of those, even the music or television industry, they're not as big as you think they are. So you're going to come across those people. So, you know, my word to the wise is just make sure you treat everyone with. With respect, make sure you're collaborating, and then you know if you want to take it to the next level, make sure that they they can share in your success somehow. Because that's, to me, that's the best way to to make sure people are coming along board with you. Um, you know, th- these statements might be in contrast to what I was telling you about leadership earlier, but that's part of what formed my philosophy later in my career, uh, based on what I actually learned and experienced, and what <laughs> bruises and band aids I had. From
0: it. I imagine part of your role as a president at Doc Air is to raise the next generation or hire the next generation of leaders. What do you what do you look for? What is your definition of a good leader?
1: I'm looking for people that well, I mean, the first thing is, and this is true of any startup. I mean, you need people that are self-starters that can come in, assess the situation, understand what's what opportunities there are for improvement. And get a team organized um, to meet whatever objective that we're trying to achieve. Now, that sounds simple, but what, what you're looking for in a leader is someone who can actually stand up in an organization. Like that is, in my there's kind of two skill sets that I would say are super important, and one of them that goes back to the story I just told. You know, influencing without authority is super hmm. important, and I don't care what level. I don't care if you're the CEO, president or anyone else. Because there's always a situation where someone else is your boss, whether it's a board member, or an investor, or the CEO, or a peer, you, you don't have direct authority accountability over those people. So I mean, influencing without authority is seriously an important trait. And you can be right out of school or a senior executive, but that's, that's a very important hmm. uh, trait. And as, as I started to mention before, I think organizing a team, setting it up from scratch, figuring out what processes this team's gonna need to be successful? What metrics are they gonna need to be measured on? That is super important. You can't, you know, f- you know, you, you you're not gonna see performance if you're not measuring things. So that you know, having a measurement system is super important. Having a processes and, and that's repeatable, and you can kind of grow and scale a team is super important too. Um, you see a lot of people in startups where there's less structure. Um, They're not performing well. Sometimes they're not performing because they haven't been given a platform to be successful. So, you know, making sure that people have a platform that and one of my big things is someone who can remove impediments. Impediments are, you know, something that stops you from doing work, from being successful, from getting a sale, from delivering a product. Doesn't matter what it is, focus as a leader on impediment removal, and your team will feel much, much better about working with you because that's. Oftentimes, what gets in their way. Um, so th- hmm. that's probably the three people that I, uh, three uh, recommendations I say for any leader.
0: How do you take someone within your organization and like train them to become a better leader? Like, do you have a philosophy around that? Is there a set of I don't know practices that you seem think are uh, appropriate and effective?
1: Well, I th- I, th- I think the main thing is that you actually have to spend time with people. Um, so. So part of what I learned is making sure you're being respectful to people, especially if you're coming in new somewhere, because, you know, oftentimes whether there's a founder or there's people that are instrumental to starting a company or founding team or something like that. Sometimes, sometimes those folks are, um, you know, they feel like they've tried everything. They feel like maybe they're not being listened to at some point. So I think the the first thing I would say is make sure you're listening to what their needs are. um, You know, figure out how to remove impediments, as I said before, but um, really, listening, putting together a way for them to be successful, and showing them the path forward. You know, I find that you know spending a little time with, with people um, can make a difference, a significant difference. Now, it depends on how much time you have. Sometimes people aren't. Sometimes people aren't a good fit. Depends on their seniority. But the other thing you want to watch out for is if if you have someone that you know can be receptive to coaching. Uh, and also is going to then coach downward on their team. So, you know, the bigger, it it differs depending on how big or small your organization is. But um, to me, I think setting clear expectations and being honest with people, having honest conversations, not yeah. not hard conversations per se, but being honest with expectations and, and such and asking them if they're, you know, are they on board for that change? Can they make that change? Um, you know, I, I think those kind of honest... Um transparent conversations help a lot. You know, the worst thing you can do is just not tell people don't, you know, if if you want if you don't want to be successful, don't tell them why they're not being successful. Don't tell them, you know, um, you know, hold back on feedback. I mean, you you want to give feedback mm-hmm. and you wanna, you know, one of the one of the ways that I give feedback is I usually ask for people, can I give you some feedback? That's an invitation. So if they say yes, okay. it kind of it's a different tone. And then I usually, Mm. you know, say something like, you know, I feel like you represent this core value and you do a really good job of it. And I feel like you would represent this other core value if you did this X, Mm. Y, Z more effectively. And just notice the nuances. I'm saying I feel and I'm kind of balancing that feedback. And it sounds counter. I mean, it sounds like uh, pretty intuitive that you would balance feedback. But this whole, the whole mechanism of asking for permission, giving that to them in a very constructive way, um, and then quite frankly, what I would ask is, if you receive feedback, you just simply say, thank you for the feedback. Hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be a discussion. It doesn't have to be a dialogue. But you know, I, I just feel like if people don't receive feedback, that you're, you're not giving them a chance, and you're doing them a huge disservice. OK,
0: I had uh, one last question. Uh, what advice would you give to those who are entrepreneurially minded who are watching this episode?
1: So I would say, so I'm going to give you two things on this because I've done a lot of corporate entrepreneurship and as well as work in startups. Now I would say on the corporate side, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur inside of a big company, test show results, do it in small ways, get permission. You know, build on innovations over time, and that will give you um, that will help you build more and more credibility inside the big organization to get funding, to do projects, to do more innovative things. Now on the startups side of things, you know, my advice is find something that you're ultimately passionate about and put everything into it everything, you know, surround your time with learning as much as you can about the space. Talk to as many customers and prospective customers as possible. Um, get as much feedback on your company, on your product, and make sure you use it. Don't ignore what you're learning. Like I said earlier with sunk cost bias, don't ignore that because you've gone so far. You know, pivoting is a, it's a tough thing, especially if you have investors um, hmm. that are asking you to hit numbers. Pivoting time and time again has provided huge value to companies that um, we know today. Twitter was not Twitter. (laughs) It pivoted because Apple came out with podcasts and that's what they used Hmm. to do. Um, That's a good book too. So I would say, keep with it, learn as much as you can get as much feedback as your customers, you know, listen to people inside at every level to make sure that even, you know, someone at a low level who's operating, something make sure you listen to what they have to say because that's where you're going to find the other opportunities for improvement either to serve your customers better make more money or come up with a new product offering
0: okay that's been uh it's been a great hour of great advice thanks for uh, your time stephen oh thank um, you david i appreciate I it, to give you an opportunity for you. uh is there is there any uh if like some of our guests and uh visitors want to follow along you, and either your company or your personal journey, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: Uh, they can email me at stephenhopper at com, And happy to get in touch.
0: Sounds good. Or, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Okay. We'll
1: have both of those on the landing page. All right. Thanks, David. Appreciate it.